for this season. And some of you were in a nursery, some of you weren't here, some of you were just kind of waking up, um, stumbling into church at like 1030. Uh, No problem with that, I'm glad you're here. Um, But what I wanted to do is I want to just kind of reiterate and just kind of share that message with you just to be very clear. And if you have any questions about it, you can ask me afterwards. What we've done here at Covenant is we've assembled a teaching team. And the purpose of this teaching team is to know Jesus and to make him known. And the people who are on this teaching team are myself, the elders here at Covenant Church, uh, Steve Risky from Brookside, whom you've heard the past couple weeks, as well as Matt Pardee from H2O. He's going to be here next month. And even though you're going to hear a diversity of of perspectives, of diversity of speakers, you're going to hear three common themes throughout each and every one of these sermons. Number one, you're going to hear the Word of God in context. We're going to preach the truth, not our opinion. We want to engage the Word of God on its own terms, okay? Number two, we're going to preach the gospel each and every single week. Jesus is going to be at the center of each of our messages. And finally, number three, we're going to preach to the mind and also to the heart, Preaching does very little if it doesn't penetrate your heart and your mind and transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. So that's what you're going to see. You're going to hear the Word of God in context. You're going to hear uh, the good news preached every, every single week. And you're going to, uh, hopefully, you're going to hear preaching that will transform your mind and also your heart as well. And just to kind of give you a rundown of the different themes that we have going on, uh, we talked about the new heart in January. We're talking about spiritual disciplines this month. Uh, Next month, we're going to have a really cool series called Real Jesus on the unpredictable but unchangeable character and nature and personality of Jesus Christ. And then further on down the year, we're going to have some really cool series. One of them is on Old Testament Rewind, basically looking at those Old Testament stories uh, that point to Jesus Christ. Uh, Some of those stories you've heard growing up in Sunday school but haven't really engaged in a little while, we're going to talk about that. We're also going to do a couple uh, expositional series on Philippians, one on James, another one uh, on frequently asked questions about the Christian faith. You know, can I be a Christian and believe in evolution? Is, uh, is Jesus really the only way to God? Just those tough questions that we get all the time. So, and I want to reiterate too, uh, here at Covenant, April 5th, Easter Sunday, we're going to have a very, very special service. The theme is going to be rescue. Uh, rescued from sin, rescued from darkness, rescued for good, rescued for life. And throughout the month of March, uh, we really want you to bring your friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, anybody you know who needs to hear the gospel abundantly clear. I want you to pray for them. I want you to invite them this next month. And then finally, invite them uh, for our April 5th uh, Easter service. So if you have any questions about any of that, you know, just give me a holler. I'll be at the back afterwards. Well, hey, my name is Ben Espinosa, if I didn't introduce myself. And you're probably wondering... Why does he have a bag? Is he just getting ready to go or something? Uh, before I you know, get into the bulk of my message, I just want to show you a little bit of my life. This is, this is my leather bag that I take everywhere. Still has that new bag smell, and I love it. This is my Samsung Chromebook. I carry it most places I go, work on it here in the office. If I go to Grounds for Thought or Starbucks or Panera, I usually have this. This is where I write all my sermons, where I write my youth group lessons, where I send a bunch of emails, always have like 10 to 20 Google Docs open, surf the web, watch a stupid YouTube video every now and then. So that's basically what I use to do most of my work. And then also, here's my tablet. I love my tablet. This is basically just like a fun thing. This is where, you know, I screw around basically. This is my my trivia crack, my games are on here, my PGA Tour game is, is on there as well. Uh, I could send an email every now and then, check Facebook, uh, watch a stupid YouTube video. I like YouTube a lot. 
Okay, so those are two pretty cool things. And then finally, I have my phone. Okay, the phone is something that I take with me everywhere. All right, I call on this thing. I text on this thing. I'll like G-chat with one, some of our staff on this thing. I'll, uh, you know, surf the net. I'll modify a Google document if I have to. I take this with me everywhere. So, so here is my life, okay? And my wife gets on my back about it all the time because I'm always tied into these devices. And I know I'm not the only one, okay? I know our culture always wants us to be tied into an ecosystem. We always need to be in touch, and we just assume that it's just a part of American life, American existence, to be tied into your devices. But what happens when you close up your laptop, you close up your tablet, or you turn off your phone for five minutes, God forbid? And what happens? What happens when you do those things? Well, you'd say, well, I'm fine. You know, I got my family. I got my friends. It's cool. But, you know, you need a car to get places, don't you? You rely on that piece of technology, especially when it's super cold. So you take all these different things away that you depend on, that you rely on for your daily existence. And what does it leave you with? If you're not tied to a piece of technology, then who or what are you tied to? What voices are you looking to hear? And are you afraid of hearing that still, small voice of God, the creator of the universe? Today I want to talk about a Christian practice that I have a really, really hard time with. It's not easy for me at all, and my guess is it's not very easy for you. In fact, I told you know, Rob Green that I was going to be preaching on, on this subject, and he's like, ah, you, you probably hate that. I'm like, yeah, you're right. And it's the practice of solitude. And I want to look at this particular practice because I think we have such a warped understanding of what it means to practice solitude. And this is kind of a tough sermon to preach, I'll be honest, because there's no clear injunction from Scripture to practice solitude. You never hear Paul say, go, you know, turn off your iPad and then go into a closet and hang out with Jesus. You never hear that. Paul deals with some weighty issues, but that's not one. However, if you look at the grand sweep of Scripture, you begin to see that solitude is one of the most important practices you can engage in to really give you that rich robust, abundant life with God, our creator. And let me reiterate what Steve so marvelously and fantastically, that's not even a word, what he said really, really well the last couple weeks. These things, Christian practices or spiritual disciplines, they're not going to earn you salvation. However, they're a means of you growing in your relationship with God and growing in your relationship with other people. And as Dallas Willard has said so eloquently before, grace isn't opposed to effort but to earning. Just because we've been saved by God's gracious hand does not mean we just get to live our lives the way we want to. We have to be the best, the most, the best stewards of God's grace that we can possibly be. And that includes growing in our relationship to him and with other people through these particular spiritual disciplines. Now, what I want to do right here, with that being said about solitude, I want to talk about it. And I want to look at what the biblical narrative has to say. But first, I want to set up base camp here in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me there. Mark 1, verses 35 through 39. We're going to spend a good deal of time in these, uh, this set of verses here. Here's what the Gospel of Mark says. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, 
And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, speaking in their synagogues and driving out demons. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, please open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts to the words that you want us to hear this morning, Lord. Use your word to transform every part of us, Lord, and conform us into the image of your Son through your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before I dig into this passage right here, let me say a couple kind of fun facts about the Gospel of Mark. Mark is almost always viewed as a second-tier kind of gospel uh, within the church, and it's been this way for centuries. So it's not quite like rich or robust like Matthew. It doesn't have that meticulousness of Luke. It doesn't have that divine spark of John. For centuries, the church has always been, Matthew, you're so marvelous and rich and robust and regal and majestic, and you're the best. Luke, you're so historical and factual and accurate, logical, rational. I love it. John, you're divine. You're transcendent. You're ethereal. Mark, meh. That's exactly what Martin Luther said. I'm just kidding. (laughs) And for centuries, the church has viewed Mark as basically a copycat from Matthew or Luke, you know. Uh, However, recent scholarship has determined that Mark was probably the first gospel written, and it was probably written by Peter through Mark, and Matthew and Luke are actually the copycats, even though they're all inspired by by, uh, the Holy Spirit. So I just want to get that out of the way there. Now, not only this, the book of Mark, if you study any commentaries, it says that Mark is a snappy gospel. It's the shortest gospel at 16 or so chapters. There's some, some shady stuff at the end there about snake handling, if you know what I'm talking about. And, and all throughout the, the book, Jesus is on the move. It's a very, very quick-moving book. And we know that because there's this Greek word that Mark uses. It's called euthaos. Euthaos. Say it with me. Euthaos. Okay. And it means right away, or snappy, or immediately, or chop-chop, straight away. And you get the picture, and you see this book used all throughout the book of Mark. In the first chapter alone, verse 10, and straight away coming out of the water. Verse 12, and immediately the Spirit drove him. Verse 19, and immediately when he had gone further. Verse 21, and immediately they went to Capernaum. Verse 29, and immediately they came out of the synagogue, and immediately they entered into the house of Simon. Verse 31, he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her. Verse 43, and immediately he charged him, and immediately he sent him away. And that's like ten times throughout the first chapter. And that Greek word, euthaos, is used 40 times across the whole entire book. So Mark's gospel shows Jesus and his disciples on the move doing stuff. Now with that in mind, reread this with me here. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let's go somewhere else then, to nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So Jesus is hanging out in solitary places, enjoying his time alone with God the Father, And Simon, who's easily the most brash, arrogant, jerky of all the disciples, he basically yells at Jesus and says, man, snap out of it. People need you. And Jesus is like totally not listening to Peter. And he says, well, let's just go somewhere else. Okay. 
He's, he's okay with what Peter says, because Jesus is a man in demand. And in a way, Simon Peter, he rebukes him for slacking on the job. So in verse 35, you get Jesus spending time alone with God the Father. And then verse 39, he's taking the world by storm. He's preaching. He's driving out demons. He's doing all this cool stuff. But you don't, this isn't the last instance where you see Jesus in solitude and then doing stuff. Okay? Mark 1.45 says this. You know, where it's, it's the story of where Jesus heals the leper. And the leper t- he tells the leper not to say anything, but the leper can't help himself. He goes, shoots off his big mouth. He tells everybody about this Jesus guy who heals people. And it says in verse 45 that the leper just told everybody in the town about Jesus. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet people still came to him everywhere. Jesus' life is getting a whole lot busier, a whole lot more public. And so Jesus needs to retreat to have that time with the Father. Going forward in the book of Mark, we read in chapter 3, verse 13, that Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those who he wanted, and he came to him. Now immediately that verse, uh, it doesn't look like it's a good verse on solitude, but we read in Luke 6 that what Jesus did is he went on the mountainside to pray and be with God the Father and then he called the disciples. So before he calls the men who would, who would take his name to the ends of the earth, who would preach the gospel, who would die for him, he spends time alone with God the Father. You skip ahead to Mark 6, verses 30 through 32. It says, The apostles gathered around Jesus, reported to him all they'd done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. And you read on through, the, through uh, Mark chapter 6. It's a story of how Jesus has compassion on people. He feeds the 5,000, multiplies some fish and some loaves of bread. You skip ahead to Mark chapter 9. It says that Jesus took Peter and James and John to a solitary place where they saw him transfigured. Moses on one side, Elijah on the other side. His clothes become dazzling white. And he basically proves that he's the son of God. He is who he says he is. And where does he do that? In a quiet, solitary place with his inner circle of disciples. And then finally, in Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 36, we read of this exchange just after Jesus has his last supper with all of his friends. We read this. It says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I want, what I will, but what you will. So in this passage, we're given a glimpse into what goes on in Jesus' time with the Father. It's a plea for rescue. It's a plea for escape. But it's also a submission to the will of the Father and Jesus receiving his marching orders from God the Father. And we know how the rest of the book goes. Jesus gets arrested. He dies on a cross for our sins. He raises again for the, from the third, on the third day. That's how the rest of the book goes. 
Now, I want, well, what I want to show you throughout all these, all these passages in Mark is that there's a certain rhythm to Jesus' life we see throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is a man on the move. Like I said, Utheos, immediately he did this. Right away he did this. Chop, chop, disciples. But placed throughout the book are times where Jesus gets away to a place of solitude, shuts out his party of disciples, and reconnects with the Father. And we even see Jesus inviting his inner circle into this, into this time, these special times of solitude. Now, what do we make of this? I think the tendency for a lot of this, at least it was for me, you know, this past week, is to say, you know, well, Jesus is a busy man. You know, he's healing the sick. He's feeding the poor. He's raising the dead back to life. He's dying for our sins. He's developing the apostles so they can go preach his name to the ends of the earth. I can see why Jesus would need to get away because he's doing all this crazy stuff. I don't want to discount that because we need those times of solitude. We need Sabbath just to almost recover from all the stuff that we do. However, it got me thinking, maybe I'm looking at this all wrong. You see, I'm so westernized. I love to be attached to my phone, my tablet, my computer. I like a busy Jesus because he's just like me. But maybe, just maybe, there's a chance that I'm looking at this all backwards. Maybe it's that Jesus' time of solitude with the Father were what drove him and energized him to fulfill his mission. Not his busyness that drove him into the arms of the Father. And this makes perfect sense if you look throughout the biblical narrative. Think of Moses alone being drawn to a burning bush. Getting his marching orders from God. Go and free my people. And go, and he went, and he freed the Israelites from Egyptian oppression. Think of how Solomon, in his time alone with God after he'd gotten this, all this land to rule over, what does he ask God for? Wisdom. And God makes him one of the most successful, powerful, wisest kings to ever walk this earth. Think of how Elijah, stuck in the wilderness, running for his life, almost on the verge of death, how God sends him a cake to eat and a jar of water and says, go, you need this. Go to Mount Horeb. And he went. We all know the story of Elijah. Skip forward to the New Testament. Think of how Paul, after he was called by, by God on, in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road, it says, uh, it's like an astray verse, I think it's in Galatians, that after Paul had his big conversion experience, he went to Arabia for three years. And a lot of scholars think that Paul was getting re-educated there. He was this Jewish man, had a very certain way of thinking, but God totally wrecked that and enlightened everything. He needs to make sense of it. So after that three years, we know what happens to Paul. He, he, uh, he writes a bunch of epistles. He writes some of the word of God. And he takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. And because of Paul, we have Christianity, basically. So that takes me back to this passage right here. Mark 1, verses 35 through 39. Looking at it with fresh eyes. Please look at it with, look at it with me here. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him and they found him and they said, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preached in their synagogues and drove out demons. What I think is that Jesus' time with the Father was most likely where he got his marching orders. 
It wasn't a time just to unwind, to unplug, to chill, to Sabbath. It was a time of hearing from God and listening to his still small voice. And as a result, being empowered to fulfill the mission that the father had for the son. So to summarize a bit, throughout the Bible, we see, spending time alone, we see people spending time alone with God and coming out transformed beings. And we see this nowhere more frequently or more evidently than in the life of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who is the creator of the universe. And the point I want to make to you is that he had time to, make, to hear from God the Father. If he had time to hear from God the Father, how much more important is it for us to hear from God? to spend time with God the Father. If God the Son has to spend time with God the Father, how much more important is it for us to do the same exact thing? Now, I want to get practical here. What do we do with this fact that solitude may not be just a time of rest or just chilling with God, but rather an active time of submitting ourselves to the will of God the Father, where we shut out all the voices who aren't His, and He empowers us, And he makes his will for our lives abundantly clear. What do we do with that? What do we do with that fact? Before I get into anything, let me clarify a few things. This solitude isn't some new age practice. It's not mysticism. It's you listening to the Holy Spirit about where he is taking you and testing those words with the word of God. And when I say that this is such an important practice in the Christian life, I'm not saying it's integral to your salvation or your standing before God. But I'm saying that it helps you grow in your closeness toward God. And as a result, brings definition to the plan that he has for your life. He has saved you for a purpose, not only because he loves you, not only because your love brings him glory and honor, but also because he wants to use you and partner with you for the redemption of the world. Now let me get into some practical applications for practicing solitude. The big thing I want to challenge you guys is to start small and keep it very consistent. Whenever we talk about spiritual disciplines, our eyes are almost always bigger than our stomachs. I'm going to fast for like a week, okay? I'm going to be a religious beast afterwards. I'm going to be so close to God, I'm going to share my food with the poor. Man, I'm just going to be transformed. It's going to be amazing. Or, you know what? I'm going I'm to make Saturday my Sabbath. I'm going to turn off my phone. I'm going to turn off my computer, my tablet, and this is going to be great. I'm going to grow my relationship with God, and it's going to be fantastic. And these almost always turn out like New Year's resolutions, You lose steam after a while, and you explode, and you get really, really self-critical. Am I a good Christian? Why can't I even do this little stuff? Why can't I even go five minutes without my phone? Why do I feel like I need to eat? You get self-loathing in a way. And the way that we get practices and habits into our lives is to start small. Anyone who runs on a consistent basis understands this principle. When you start running for the first time, you have to start very small. Sometimes you run a quarter mile. Then over time, that quarter mile turns into a half mile. And a half mile turns into a full mile. Before you know it, you're running 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons. You start small. You start small and you build it up. And the same principle applies to dieting and exercise and everything. It's tough to do anything cold turkey. But studies do show that those small changes that you make over time will make you a healthier person in the long run. So you start to cut out pop and replace it with water. So you start to cut out desserts and replace it with fruit. Before you know it, you're living a healthier lifestyle and you feel a whole lot better. And the same exact principle applies to these Christian practices, particularly solitude. 
people think that they have to start spending time in solitude for like an hour every single day right off the bat. But for many of us, it's making those small changes. For the past month or so, I've been doing that experience, that experiment in solitude. Like I said, I'm not the biggest fan of solitude. I got to be plugged in. I got to have everything. I got to be talking to somebody. So I started off just in five minutes, just shutting away everything, praying, reading scripture. And over time, five minutes turns into 10, 10 into 20. Before you know it, you're wanting to spend an hour each and every day with God the Father. It starts small, and you got to keep it consistent in order to reap the benefits of spending time with God in solitude. The second thing I want to emphasize is you've got to make it active, and you've got to make it intentional. Solitude isn't just about you giving up your technology or your devices. It's about you actively seeking the will of God for your life. And how do you do that? You spend time reading scripture. You spend time praying to God. The more you fill your mind with God's word, with praying and pleading with God and allowing God to speak with you through his word, the more effective your time with God will be. And that's why some of these devices are so harmful to us. Not so much because we depend on them. Humans have always depended upon technology, the horse and buggy, fire, everything but because there are so many voices communicating with us, distracting from the still, small voice of God the Father. You need to look a certain way. You need to act a certain way. You need to have these devices to, to live a fruitful life. You need to dress like this. Before you know it, you're abiding in the time of the world as opposed to abiding in the time of God. And I understand that being in the world and being missional means that you're going to be surrounded by all these different challenges to your relationship with God. However, if you don't take the time out to pray, to read scripture, to spend that time alone with God the Father, to reconnect with the Holy Spirit, you'll fall prey to these voices. And as a result, you'll be veered off the path that God has for you. So when you have those times of solitude, be intentional about filling them with with the word of God, with prayer, with the gospel, with how unchangeable God's character really is. Reconnect with where God has you, where he wants you to go, just as he did with Moses, just as he did with Solomon, just as he did with Elijah, just as he did with Paul, and just as he did with Jesus. So he will do for us who call on his name. And solitude's really about the gospel, isn't it? Isn't it because of Christ's death on the cross that we can even have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Spend time with him? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I'd encourage you, know Jesus, believe in him, proclaim him as your Lord and your Savior. Your life will never be the same. You'll experience that abundant life, that relationship with the creator of the universe that loves you. And if you do know Jesus, why aren't you spending time in solitude? Why aren't you spending time with him? You know, we talk so much about community here at Covenant, and I'll be the first to preach a message on community. I can preach on community for weeks on end if I had to. But even more importantly than community with each other, it's community individually with God. You want to be around the kind of people who will sharpen you, challenge you, help you grow in your faith, transform you into the image of Christ. Why not spend time with God first and foremost and have him work on you? The thing I want to leave you with and think about it and practice it. Learn to incorporate solitude into your life five minutes a day. You're not going to reap the benefits just yet, but over time, with more practice, with more diligence, with more patience, 
you'll come to reap the benefits of spending time alone with God, hearing Him, and Him empowering you to fulfill your mission. Solitude is the time where we connect back into God and where He empowers us for service to Him, for mission. Stand with me as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fact that we can have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you'll give us those moments, those short moments, sometimes long moments, where we can reconnect with you and where you can empower us for mission, Lord. I pray that you'll help us to tune out other voices that are not yours, telling us to do certain things. And I pray that you'll help us to reconnect with you and have your perspective, Lord, just like Moses did, just like everybody else did throughout Scripture, just like Jesus did. I pray that you'll give us diligence, the strength, the discipline to do that so we can reconnect with you and as a result be empowered for the mission that you have for us, Heavenly Father. We pray this in Christ's name.